You're listening to Read With Me. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and we are today covering Chapter 5 of the January 6th Committee's final report. It is entitled A Coup in Search of a Legal Theory, which is a quotation, I believe, from one of the judicial opinions from Judge David Carter in the Eastman attorney-client privilege litigation. The chapter runs from page 427 to 496. It's a pretty long chapter, and it covers, I think, what is really the heart of the story, which is how these various strains that we've been discussing in the previous chapters come together in President Trump's pressure on Vice President Mike Pence in the days immediately prior to January 6th to count the votes incorrectly to reject the electoral votes from the supposedly contested states. There is not a great deal new in the chapter, but it is elegantly put together, and it is a very compelling read. The core of the story, of course, is that John Eastman, the Chapman Law Professor from California, advances a theory under which the vice president is not merely the ministerial presider of the joint session, which was to take place on January 6th, but actually had substantive powers to accept or reject the submitted electoral votes from the states in question. As the committee puts it, Eastman admitted in front of the president that the options he suggested, both of them actually, and we'll get into the specifics of them, violated the Electoral Count Act of 1887, the statute that sets forth the process for counting and disputing electoral votes during the joint session. Eastman admitted as much in a subsequent conversation with the vice president's staff as well. Therefore, President Trump knew or should have known that this scheme was illegal. So the first interesting thing, and I think the only thing I really learned from this chapter that was wholly new to me, is that the sort of patient zero of the vice president's role theory, this idea that the vice president could simply throw out, you know, Joe Biden electors from uh, contested states and and either not count them for Biden or, you know, do something else. We'd always associated with this with the two John Eastman memos. And as the chapter goes on to make clear, that's right. But patient zero in this aspect of the story actually does not seem to be Eastman. It seems to be a guy named uh, Kenneth Cheesebro. Now, I have mentioned uh, Kenneth Cheesebro before. After episode four, I was contacted by somebody who knows Kenneth Cheesebro and who informed me that he is actually, that is actually not how his name is pronounced. His name is pronounced Kenneth Chesbro, which uh, is much less fun. I suppose in the interest of accuracy, I should call him uh, Mr. Chesbro from now on. Anyway, on December 13th, 2020, Kenneth Chesbro, a pro-Trump lawyer, sent a memo to Rudolph Giuliani, the president's lead outside counsel, upon a request from Trump campaign official Boris Epstein. Chesbro in this memo laid out a president of the Senate strategy. Chesbro argued that when the joint session met on January 6th, the president of the Senate should not count Arizona's electoral votes for Vice President Biden, quote, because there are two slates of votes. Now, the committee then goes on to say, of course, there were not two legitimate slates of votes from Arizona. There were official electors certified by the state and a group of fake electors convened by the Trump campaign. As the committee lays it out, the so-called president of the Senate strategy arises in several discrete pieces. And the first is the idea that the vice president has any role in this at all, other than to preside, open the envelopes, and announce the results, to literally open it and count the votes. The second element is that you can treat 
fake electors as a competing slate of electors. And this is, of course, a sleight of hand that we discussed in the previous chapter uh, and that the committee is very fixated on, right? That these groups of people got together and cosplayed as electors, but they don't have certificates of ascertainment from any state body. They're actually no different from if you and a group of friends, you know, on the appropriate day declared yourself electors for me and purported to cast votes and notify Congress that you had done so. So the first element is the idea that Pence has a role. The second element is the idea that we can treat so-called slates of electors as electors rather than as, you know, buffoons. Both of those elements seem to be in this memo. So the committee notes that this plan was also advanced by John Eastman. And the first of the two Eastman memos occurs, the shorter of them occurs on December 23rd, when he writes a two-page memo summarizing ways to ensure that Trump is reelected. He suggested that the vice president could refuse to count the electoral votes from seven states, the key seven, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And Eastman's theory here is that Pence could simply reject those states' electoral college votes. It's not that you count the, not that you count the fake electors for Trump. It's that you just don't count the votes at all. You reject them on the theory that there are competing slates that would knock down Biden's total down to 222 electoral votes. Trump has 232 electoral college votes. And so Trump would win because he would have a majority of the electoral college votes as counted, not, of course, a majority of the actual electoral college votes. Writes Eastman, according to the committee, Pence then gavels President Trump as reelected. So Eastman anticipates here that the Democrats would probably not sit still for this and would object. After all, you're supposed to need 270 electoral votes to win. But Eastman's theory is in that situation, the election could be thrown to the House of Representatives, which is supposed to elect a president on the basis of one vote per state. And of course, Republicans controlled a majority of state delegations at that point. So the theory was you either win by knocking Biden's total down or you win because the thing gets thrown to the House of Representatives. Now, here's the big trick. Eastman knows the committee thinks that this is not a legally winning strategy. His theory is if you ask any court for permission, you're going to lose. But if you do it by raw power, then the courts will stay out of it because it's a political question. He writes, the main thing here is that Pence should do this without asking for permission, either from a vote of the joint session or from the court. The fact is that the Constitution assigns this power to the vice president as the ultimate arbiter. We should take all our actions with that in mind. So the committee notes here, and I think this is important if you're thinking about the criminal process and, and Trump, that Trump was looped in on Eastman's proposal from the beginning and approved of it. So the committee writes, the same day Eastman started preparing the memo, he sent an email to Trump's assistant, Molly Michael, at 1.32 p.m. Is the president available for a very quick call today at some point? just want to update on our overall strategic thinking. Only five minutes later, Eastman received a call from the White House switchboard. According to his phone records, the conversation lasted for almost 23 minutes. Here you have, according to the committee anyway, Eastman proposing something that he knows to be illegal, or at least knows to be something that would not fly before the courts, that was in conflict with the Electoral Count Act and is advising the president of his plans from the beginning. So Eastman's theory is really the foundation for the president's January 6th actions. And, you know, whether we should call them Eastman's theory or Chesbro's theory, I'm not sure. The exact, you know, sort of who first came up with it is is a little bit unclear to me. There's a lot of problems with Eastman's approach here, and the first of them 
is that it's not just wrong, but it's pretty clear that he knows it's got real problems. Just before the 2020 presidential election, the committee writes, Eastman acknowledged in writing that the vice president had no such expansive power. This admission, which is very explicit, takes place in the course of an exchange of emails with a gentleman named Bruce Colbert, who had written a letter to President Trump advising him on a strategy, and Eastman provided comments on the strategy letter. So that letter included a recommendation that the president of the Senate decides authoritatively what certificates from the states to open. And Eastman responds to this on October 17th, 2020, I don't agree with this, and continued, the 12th Amendment only says that the president of the Senate opens the ballots in the joint session, and then, in the passive voice, that the votes shall be counted. 3 U.S.C. 12 says merely that he is the presiding officer, and then it spells out specific procedures, presumptions, and default rules for which slates will be counted. Nowhere does it suggest that the president of the Senate gets to make the determination on his own. Section 15 doesn't either. Okay, so there you have Eastman before the election laying out what is the sort of orthodox traditional understanding of the interaction between the Electoral Count Act and the 12th Amendment. But by the 5th of December 2020, Eastman writes to Colbert, I have spoken directly with the folks at the top of the chain of command on this. They are now aware of the issues. Okay, so maybe it is Colbert who should be understood as patient zero here. Eastman's view seems to have changed over the course of the the relevant period of time. That does not necessarily mean, in my view, that Eastman knows he was proposing something illegal. It does suggest that he had a very convenient change of heart on the substance of the vice president's role. The committee's case that Eastman knew he was engaging in illegal activity gets stronger as it gets added to, but that's the first major piece of it. The other really important element of this is that from Eastman's point of view, the question has to be non-justiciable because what you don't want is a court ruling on the meaning of these provisions because any court looking at it would adopt the orthodox understanding. He argued very specifically that the vice president's authority was a non-justiciable political question. The committee writes, in other words, that Vice President Pence could just act and no court would have jurisdiction to rule on the issue. As Eastman's emails later in the month make clear, he thought there was an important reason to keep the issue out of the courts. They would rule that the theory was unlawful. So one point on which nobody is arguing is that Eastman's approach required a violation on Vice President Pence's part of the Electoral Count Act. The Electoral Count Act lays out very specific procedures. Eastman is urging here that the vice president depart in significant ways from those procedures. And Eastman is frank that this is not consistent with the Electoral Count Act. Quote, when he gets to Arizona, he announces that he has multiple slates of electors and so is going to defer decision on that until finishing the other states, Eastman wrote. This would be the first break with the procedure set out in the act. So the committee notes here that when he says break with procedure, he's really arguing for just violating the law. Now, of course, Eastman doesn't frame it that way. He frames it that the vice president has this power from the 12th Amendment to the extent the Electoral Count Act spells out procedures that don't allow him to do whatever he wants. It's unconstitutional. But he understands, he clearly understands that it is his view that is the departure from the norm. So Eastman continues that Congress would likely follow the, quote, process set forth in the Electoral Count Act and 
quote, the two houses would break into their separate chambers for debate. But this is not what he wants to do. He advised that, quote, we should not allow the Electoral Count Act constraint on debate to control, and the Trump team should demand normal rules, which includes the filibusters. So again, he's here simply describing departing from the procedures laid out in the law in order to, quote, create a stalemate, giving state legislatures more time to weigh in to formally support the alternative slate of electors if they had not already done so. Now, of course, there are no alternative slate of electors. There are fake electors. And remember as well that this takes place the exact time that this same group of people, Eastman, Giuliani, Trump, etc., are, as the committee puts it, working to replace certified electors for former Vice President Biden in certain states with Trump electors by leaning on state legislators, by leaning on state officials, etc. There are a lot of problems with this whole scheme, and these problems were apparent to just about everybody who wasn't specifically working on the scheme. Eric Hirschman, who's perhaps the most colorful of the attorneys working for Trump in the White House in his interactions with the committee, meets with Eastman to discuss the memo, which he described as crazy. And here's what he says to the committee. And I said to him, hold on a second. I want to understand what you're saying. You're saying you believe the vice president acting as president of the Senate can be the sole decision maker as to under your theory, who becomes the next president of the United States? And he said, yes. And I said, are you out of your effing mind? Right? And that was pretty blunt. I said, you're completely crazy. You're going to turn around and tell 78 plus million people in this country that your theory is this is how you're going to invalidate their votes because you think the election was stolen? I said, they're not going to tolerate that. I said, you're going to cause riots in the streets. And he said words to the effect of, there's been violence in the history of our country to protect the democracy or to protect the republic. The committee writes in the next sentence, as recounted by Hirschman, Eastman was shockingly unconcerned with the prospect of violence. Hirschman then follows up. If the states wanted to recertify their electors, you know, name a slate of electors for Trump, why weren't they doing that themselves? Quote, why aren't they already coming into session and saying, we want to change the slates? And why do you need the vice president to go down this path? Eastman, the committee says, had no response to this question. So Hirschman also reports that he didn't think there was any chance this would work. And moreover, he asks Eastman whether Eastman can cite any precedent for something like this. And of course, Eastman cannot, but then contends that these are unprecedented times. Hirschman is not the only one who has real problems with this. White House counsel Pat Cipollone thought the plan was, quote, nutty. Uh, Jason Miller, who's a campaign official, testified that Matt Morgan, who was the campaign's general counsel and deputy campaign manager, Justin Clark, thought Eastman was crazy and understood that there was, quote, no validity to his theory in any way, shape, or form, and shared their views with anyone who would listen. Another group of people, and this becomes very important, who did not believe this theory had any merit was the staff of Vice President Pence, and in particular, Greg Jacob, who was the counsel to the vice president. And Greg Jacob here, I want to say, deserves a lot of credit as a lawyer. He served his client, that is the vice president, very well. And I, I think his legal approach to this whole thing uh, probably really helped the vice president a great deal. So first of all, the vice president's office gets on this early. The office of the vice president produces an initial staff memo on the subject as early as October 26th. And as the matter developed into December, the committee reports that Jacob did extensive research on and historical analysis 
of both the Electoral Count Act of 1887 and the 12th Amendment of the Constitution. And he concluded quite simply that the vice president had to adhere to the Electoral Count Act. The ECA has been followed for 130 years and, quote, every single time that there has been any objection to electors, it has been resolved in accordance with the Electoral Count Act procedures, Jacob testified. More importantly, found that there is no justifiable basis to conclude that the vice president has that kind of authority to affect the outcome of an election, and Jacob stated that his review of text history and, frankly, just common sense all confirmed that the vice president does not have that power. So after studying it on behalf of the client, he sides very much with the orthodox understanding of the 12th Amendment and the ECA. So pause a minute there and think about the group of people who are saying this is nuts. This is not, you know, the usual liberal law professor caucus, right? This is the staff of Vice President Pence the staff of the White House Counsel's Office, and the Trump campaign's own general counsel and staff are all kind of in agreement, this stuff is nuts. So who steps up to advance it from the congressional side? Of course, that picture of congressional sanity, Representative Louis Gohmert, who pushed a version of the Eastman theory in the courts. And this happens on December 27th, 2020, and he goes into court. This was done, by the way, with Trump aware of the lawsuit and signing off on it. And he was essentially asking a court to tell Vice President Pence that he could not follow the procedures set forth in the Electoral Count Act because he had the exclusive authority. Now, this suit is ridiculous for a lot of reasons. But for our purposes here, the main point is that Eastman himself did not like this lawsuit. And the reason is very telling. So Eastman thought that this suit had a very high risk of getting a court to reject his theory. That is, you could reject this suit for a lot of reasons, most importantly, standing, which is, I believe, the basis under which the court very quickly threw it out. But you could also have a court say, wait a minute, this is ridiculous, right? And then you have a legal opinion that rejects his theory and that actually states that Pence doesn't have the authority to do this. So it was really important to Eastman to do this without asking for permission, because if you ask for permission, you're going to lose. The committee writes, those who were advocating to press on with the Eastman scheme did not want to bring it before a federal judge because of the high risk that a court's determination that the scheme was illegal would stop the plan to overturn the election dead in its tracks. So who other than Eastman and Louis Gomer were behind this plan? John McEntee, uh, the director of the Presidential Personnel Office, uh, did some research on it. Not a lawyer, has no background in the area, but he actually contributes. Uh, he's, you know, one of the key people on this. He writes a memo on the subject. Another advocate for the vice president to play a role here was Jenna Ellis, uh, Rudy Giuliani's uh, sidekick. And she argued in two memos that Vice President Pence had the power to delay the counting of the certified electoral votes. Uh, she proposed a delay of 10 days as the vice president and Congress awaited a response from state legislatures, which would meet in the interim. So this becomes important because this idea uh, becomes Eastman's sort of fallback plan. And her memos claimed that the vice president here would not be exercising discretion nor establishing new precedents, but simply asking for clarification from the constitutionally appointed authority, i.e. the state legislature, and just kick it back and say, hey, did you really mean to certify Joe Biden's election here? She, of course, being a good lawyer, sends the substance of her memo not just to her client, but also to Fox News twice, 
wants to Judge Janine Pirro on January 1st, 2021, and wants to Fox News contributor John Solomon. All right, so now the groundwork is laid. We're right around the turn of the year. Uh, we're just past the turn of the year, actually, so it's almost exactly two years ago. And two things happen. The first is that Vice President Pence himself has to make a decision about, you know, how he is going to behave on January 6th. And the second is that the Trump forces launch a, what I can only describe as a full court press, both publicly and privately, to pressure him to play the role that they want him to play. On January 2nd, Pence met with his counsel, Greg Jacob, his chief of staff, Mark Short, and Matt Morgan, the general counsel of the campaign, to discuss the matter. And uh, Pence was concerned in this meeting that most people would be confused about the certification of electoral votes, particularly given the fake electors, the claimed alternative slates, and that he needed to explain his role very clearly. So Jacob begins drafting a statement for the vice president to issue on January 6th. Now, I want to say I have no love for Mike Pence. His behavior since this period has been deplorable in a lot of respects. But I think his behavior in this period, this period from January 1st, 2021 through January 6th, is exemplary. I don't really know how to reconcile those two things. His apparent shame at his behavior in this period that he will not repudiate even the people who were calling on him to be hanged strikes me as pretty deranged. But this is a guy who, when it really mattered, had his lawyers do good work and then, as a politician, was guided by the law in a serious way. And I think we should admire and should respect that. So the first thing he does is he tells Jacob, I need to explain exactly what I'm doing. And so Jacob begins working on this statement. And the committee notes that he was, you know, particularly worried that the fake electors issue was sowing confusion. And so he wanted a statement that would be as transparent as possible. Initially, they kind of tease that statement and that this initial statement happens on January 2nd, in which Mark Short, his chief of staff, releases the following. Vice President Pence shares the concerns of millions of Americans about voter fraud and irregularities in the last election, the statement read. The vice president welcomes the efforts of members of the House and Senate to use the authority they have under the law to raise objections and bring forward evidence before Congress and the American people on January 6th. I remember that statement from when Pence made it, and I remember being infuriated by it because he seemed to be implying that there were meritorious claims about voter frauds and irregularities in the last election and that he welcomed you know, congressional debate over it in the context of January 6th. Uh, and I thought that was inappropriate, <laughs> kind of dangerous. But I have to say in rereading the statement in retrospect, I think it's a little bit more clever than I understood at the time. It may be too clever by half because it was written in such a way that I certainly didn't notice what he was saying or, or what he appeared to be trying to say. But the key words in it is that he welcomes the efforts of members of the House and Senate to use the authority they have under the law, which is, of course, a way of saying that the authority does not reside with him. And so this, I think, mixes here the careful good side of Mike Pence with the reckless bad side of him. So yes, he's willing to fuel this delusional theory and not willing to say, hey, I don't have any power here, but there's also no credible allegations of voter fraud. And if the president won't concede the election, I'm happy to concede that I lost the election. That's what I think he should have said. That said, he is here careful 
not to say or imply that he has any appropriate role here. Meanwhile, while he is making this very careful statement, John Eastman goes on Steve Bannon's podcast. The public pressure campaign really kicks into high gear. Bannon on the show claimed that the vice president is hardwired in and an actual decision maker on January 6th. And he insists that the vice president's role is not ministerial. And Eastman agrees with that. Bannon asks him, are we to assume that this is going to be a climactic battle that's going to take place this week about the very question of the constitutionality of the Electoral Count Act of 1887? And Eastman replied, I think a lot of that depends on the courage and spine of the individuals involved. Bannon asks him whether he meant Vice President Pence, and Eastman answers yes. The next day, Eastman drafts a longer version of his memo that has several different scenarios for January 6th, only a few of which uh, end up with Trump winning. Specifically, Eastman concluded that Trump could remain president if and only if Vice President Pence followed his advice and determined which electoral college ballots were valid. The committee here really focuses on the fact that Eastman knows he is playing dirty with the fake electors. And I think this passage is particularly interesting. The committee writes, in his six-page memo, consistent with the earlier two-page memo, Eastman states that the Trump electors met and transmitted votes, finding that there are thus dual slates of electors from seven states. But the committee points out that Eastman had acknowledged on multiple occasions, both before and after January 6th, that these dual slates had no legal significance. In an email sent on December 19th, 2020, Eastman wrote that the seven Trump-Pence slates of electors will be dead on arrival in Congress unless those electors get a certification from their state legislatures. So he appears to understand that he's using cosplay electors as a second legitimate slate of electors, and and he seems to understand that that's like a sleight of hand you're not allowed to do, but he nonetheless does it. So in a December 23rd memo, he writes, the fact that we have multiple slates of electors demonstrates the uncertainty of either. That should be enough. And so again, in some of his writing after January 6th, he again seems to acknowledge that these electors had no force. In one of them, he writes, alas, they had no authority because no legislature certified them. But this doesn't stop him from talking about them and urging action on the basis of them as though they were an actually certified second slate of electors. And his and the committee's point here is that this is a further piece of evidence that he really does know that what he's doing is illegal because he's on the one hand urging that the president do it and that the vice president do it. And on the other hand, you know, writing memos that acknowledge that these have no legal validity at all. And again, he insists that the vice president needs to do this, quote, without asking for permission, either from a vote of the joint session or from the court. The fundamentals of the claim is that the Constitution assigns this power to the vice president as the ultimate arbiter. So now it is the next day, January 4th, 2021, and President Trump summons Vice President Pence to the Oval Office for what the committee describes as a showdown. So now we are like two days out from January 6th, and the forces gather. So on the vice president's side, Mark Short and Greg Jacob attend with the vice president. Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, makes only a brief appearance, leaving just as the meeting starts. But there is somebody who is missing, from the meeting. And this, I think, is going to turn out to be extremely significant. So let's 
talk about it for a moment. And the person who's missing is Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel. The reason he was missing appears to be that he did not support the president's course of action here. He did not support the approach. So here is what we know, and here is why I think this is extremely significant. I'm just going to read a set of passages from the report, and then I'm going to talk about what they're not saying that I think is highly significant. Philbin had researched the vice president's role in the January 6th joint session and concluded that Vice President Pence had no power to affect the outcome. Cipollone agreed and informed Short and Jacob that this was the opinion of the White House Counsel's Office. Mark Meadows invited Cipollone to speak with Eastman prior to the Oval Office meeting. Cipollone told Eastman that his scheme was, quote, not something that is consistent with the appropriate reading of the law. After delivering this assessment directly to Eastman in Meadows's office, Cipollone walked to the Oval Office with the intent to attend the meeting. However, by the time the vice president and his staff arrived, Cipollone was gone. Cipollone declined to testify as to what he told President Trump or why he did not attend the Oval Office meeting, but he was clear that he didn't end up attending the meeting because of something that had happened after he walked into the Oval Office. Whatever happened, Cipollone maintained, was protected by executive privilege, suggesting that he was asked to leave by the president. What is clear, however, is that Cipollone had already shared his view directly with Meadows and Eastman, i.e. that the proposal President Trump and Eastman were about to advocate to the vice president was illegal. Okay, so that is a long quotation, but there are some very important things to say about it. The first is that from context, it's quite clear, at least the broad parameters of what happened, which is that the president asked for Cipollone's advice, right? If he hadn't asked for his advice or input about something, it wouldn't be covered by executive privilege. And Cipollone gave it to him. We know what Cipollone's views were because he gave it to other people. And specifically, what he almost certainly told the president was that the plan was unlawful. Trump then excludes him from the meeting, or maybe he decides it is having given his view, he doesn't want to be involved in the planning of illegal activity. And so he absents himself. It's not clear to me which happens. But let's assume that he conveys his view to the president that this plan is not lawful. That is a very powerful piece of evidence that the president knew he was engaged in illegal activity, that, you know, your lawyer told you, don't do this, it's illegal. But here is the other really important element of this, which is all of this material that Cipollone refuses to tell the committee, he will not be able to refuse to tell the Justice Department. There's two possible privileges that Cipollone might cite here to protect this material. One is executive privilege. The other is attorney-client privilege. Both of them are plausible assertions before Congress, and there is quite clear law that they are not plausible assertions by an executive branch lawyer in a grand jury matter. Cipollone will answer these questions before a grand jury unless there's something big that I'm not thinking of. And so, You have to assume here that what we have to get by reading between the lines, which is that Cipollone does not attend this meeting because he had informed President Trump that his course of conduct was unlawful. The Justice Department is going to get the details of that conversation, and they're going to find out. They probably already have, because we know that Cipollone and Philbin have both testified. They are going to learn exactly what he advised President Trump about this and other conversations about the legality of his conduct. And I think that's going to be extremely damaging for President Trump. With that as a detour, Pat Cipollone not present. However, others are perfectly capable of telling the president that his course of action is unlawful. And in fact, Eastman even admits in this Oval Office meeting that both of the paths of conduct uh, that he's proposing, both that Vice President Pence simply reject the electors and that Vice President Pence maybe kicks it back to the states for a redo, the the sort of Jenna Ellis version, uh, they both 
based on the same legal theory, and they both require violations of the Electoral Count Act. He eventually even acknowledged, according to the committee, that the concept of the vice president unilaterally rejecting electors had no precedent and that the Supreme Court would never endorse it. So he he's very aware that if this is litigated, he's going to lose. The committee writes, Jacob recorded his reflections on the January 4th meeting in a contemporaneous memo to the vice president. The memo confirms that Eastman admitted that his proposal violated the law in the presence of President Trump. Jacob wrote that Eastman acknowledged that his proposal violates several provisions of statutory law, namely the Electoral Count Act. Of course, it has this foundational problem that there are no competing electors. And Jacob notes in the memo that in the Oval Office meeting, Eastman conceded that no legislature has appointed or certified any alternate slate of electors and that the purported alternate slates were illegitimate without what Jacob described as the imprimatur of approval by a state legislature. And Jacob ended his memo with the following scathing summary. If the vice president implemented Professor Eastman's proposal, he would likely lose in court, Jacob wrote. In a best-case scenario in which the courts refused to get involved, the vice president would likely find himself in an isolated standoff against both houses of Congress, as well as most or all of the applicable state legislatures, with no neutral arbiter to break the impasse. So there's this lengthy meeting in which Eastman and Jacob have this discussion in front of the vice president and the president, and, you know, the full matter is ventilated. And suffice it to say that the vice president is not persuaded by Eastman's theory, and and he does not relent um, on the view that his role at the joint session is merely ceremonial. To which Trump, having failed in the private pressure, now goes public. This happens at a rally in Dalton, Georgia, in which he publicly describes Pence as a great vice president, a great guy, and a wonderful, smart man. But he then alludes to the vice president's role, but he's going to have a lot to say about it. And of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. So the pressure does not stop on January 5th. So the pressure doesn't stop on January 5th. Trump continues the pressure campaign. He tweets about uh, Vice President Pence the vice president has the power to reject fraudulently chosen electors, he tweets. And meanwhile, Eastman meets with Jacob and uh, Hirschman uh, shows up as well. And while he puts pressure on them, he also finds himself in the position of having to acknowledge that the theory has gaping holes. So he concedes that the theory has no historical support. He acknowledges that his theory would lose nine to nothing at the Supreme Court. And according to Jacob, Eastman, quote, acknowledged by the end that, first of all, no reasonable person would actually want the clause of the Twelfth Amendment read that way, because if indeed it did mean that the vice president had such authority, you could never have a party switch thereafter. In other words, why would any vice president of a democratic administration acknowledge any Republican electoral votes or vice versa, right? You would just create in the vice presidency the, the authority to decide who's president. And so as the meeting is breaking up, Eastman says, they're going to be really disappointed that I wasn't able to persuade you. Here, Pence does, I think, the next thing that I think is super smart, which is he goes to people outside the government for advice. And I think he actually picks pretty well. Let's talk about who he picked. So he first he goes to Judge um, J. Michael Ludig, who is a kind of luminary of the conservative bar, by coincidence, Eastman is a Ludig clerk, which makes the whole thing a little bit gothic. I've known Mike Ludig for more than 20 years. I think very highly of him. 
and uh, he was a judge on the Fourth Circuit for a long time, and subsequent to that was the general counsel of Boeing. He's a very smart guy, and he's exactly the kind of outside person that a Mike Pence should be turning to. He's a you know, if you think you're a conservative mem- uh, vice president, you're under this intense pressure. Your counsel says it's illegal. What sh- what should you do? Well, pick up the phone and call someone like Mike Ludig. It's a very like it just shows it shows good judgment on Pence's part, and Ludig backs him up and also tweets it. So Ludig, of course, then becomes uh, a bit of a ca- of a celebrity as a result of his writings on this subject and his actions in and his testimony. But his tweet is, and again, this is just lucid and careful and I, I think very powerful for its brevity. The only responsibility and power of the vice president under the Constitution is to faithfully count the electoral votes as they have been cast. The Constitution does not empower the vice president to alter in any way the votes that have been cast, either by rejecting certain of them or otherwise. So next he goes to Paul Ryan, somebody who's also a politician, somebody who is of a similar conservative bent as he. He's also worked with Ryan, of course. And of course, Ryan had his own run-ins with Trump. And then he talks to Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle is the uh, butt of a lot of jokes. But I think this is, again, a good person for him to talk to. After all, Dan Quayle's uh, an Indiana politician. So they're, you know, sort of from the same state, from the same political culture, but who also was vice president when the last first term president was defeated, right? George H.W. Bush, Dan Quayle had to sit there and count the electoral votes for Bill Clinton. Al Gore had to do the same while he was vice president, uh, for, but about himself. You can understand how Pence would be more comfortable talking to Quayle about it. And so I, I think this, again, just shows good, solid judgment. Reach out to three people you're comfortable talking to and reality check things. Also, January 5th, President Trump continues to be irrepressible, finally corners Pence. Pence had been supposed to have lunch with him, bags on the lunch, clearly trying to avoid him. Uh, but finally, he couldn't avoid him anymore, so he delays a coronavirus task force meeting and he is called to the Oval Office. Committee writes, the two men met alone without staff present. While we have not developed direct evidence of what was discussed during this one-on-one meeting between the president and the vice president, it did not change the fundamental disagreement between them about the limits of the vice president's authority during the joint session. Jacob says the vice president left the meeting determined. Pence did tell Short what was said during the meeting, but Short refused to tell the committee. He did, however, testify that the following excerpt from Bob Woodward's book Peril was sensationalized, but generally consistent with the discussion. So that excerpt reads, If these people say you have the power, wouldn't you want to? Trump asked. I wouldn't want any one person to have that authority, Pence said. But wouldn't it be almost cool to have that power, Trump asked? No, Pence said. Look, I've read this, and I don't see a way to do it. We've exhausted every option. I've done everything I could, and then some to find a way around this. It simply is not possible. My interpretation is no. No, 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 Trump shouted. You don't understand, Mike. You can do this. I don't want to be your friend anymore if you don't do this. Again, the Justice Department can get this. Mike Pence can refuse to testify before the committee, as he did, but he would not be able, as a private citizen, to refuse to divulge the results of this communication to a grand jury. There is a subsequent call between Trump and Pence that day. Short and Jacob are both present for it, and Eastman and at least one other lawyer are on Trump's side of the call. And in this call, Eastman recognizes the committee reports that 
Pence was not going to change his mind, but he then falls back to this idea of sending the electors back to the states. Pence refuses that as well, but he does say that his counsel will hear out whatever Eastman wants to talk about on the subject. And so there are then additional conversations between Jacob and Eastman, but nothing that fundamentally changes the picture. All of which brings us to the evening of January 5th, which you will remember well, as that is the evening that everyone was transfixed by the electoral returns from Georgia. We weren't thinking about Vice President Pence's role in the electoral count the next day at the moment, but the New York Times was, and it published an article entitled, Pence Said to Have Told Trump He Lacks the Power to Change Election Results, a story that was, of course, true and was very likely, in my view, the product of sourcing from the vice president's office, but that's neither here nor there. The report comes out at 7.36 p.m. in the evening, and Trump immediately springs into action to lie about it. He issues a statement in which he says a number of things that just aren't true. He claimed that he and Vice President Pence were in total agreement that the vice president has the power to act. Um, that, of course, was not true. He claimed that the election was illegal, and he wrote out Eastman's theory our vice president has several options under the U.S. Constitution. He can decertify the results or send them back to the states for change and certification. He can also decertify the illegal and corrupt results and send them to the House of Representatives for one vote for one state tabulation. Pence and his people are furious at the false statements but they ultimately decide that there's no reason to do anything about it since they were going to issue the big Pence statement as a dear colleague letter the following day. Meanwhile, Bannon is amplifying the pressure. During a episode of War Room Pandemic that day, he and his guests berate the vice president, won't go into the details of that, as it is the usual nonsense, but it is, again, all part of this scheme publicly and privately to maximize the costs to Pence of not doing what they want. So now it is January 6th, and the president starts the morning with a series of tweets emphasizing that Pence can, you know, do what Eastman wants to do. The president and the vice president have what is described as a heated conversation before the rally on the ellipse. Uh, they connect by phone, uh, unlike the private conversation the previous day, this one uh, there are witnesses to, so we have a better sense of what happened in it. Uh, Hirschman describes that it was pretty heated. Uh, Ivanka Trump describes that it was a different tone than she'd previously heard her father speak to the vice president in. One witness said that Trump called vice president the P-word. By the way, just an aside, the the way these witnesses consistently use bad language, but then describe it as effing or the P word. All right, so Trump called Vice President Pence a pussy. Another witness described him as saying he regretted choosing his choosing Pence as his running mate, calling him a wimp. But uh, Pence had clearly made up his mind here. So that brings us to the rally itself. And I guess the only point here is that uh, a bunch of things, you know, a bunch of rhetoric, of course, at the rally was directed at the vice president. Eastman himself speaks at the rally and in a very incendiary fashion, by the way. And Trump's speech itself is... Uh, has portions of it that are significantly directed at Pence. Pence waits until Trump is done speaking before he releases his statement, and his statement read as follows. Today it will be my duty to preside when the Congress convenes in joint session to count the votes of the Electoral College, and I will do so to the best of my ability. He explained that his role as presiding officer is largely ceremonial, 
and dismissed the idea that he could take any unilateral action. As a student of history who loves the Constitution and reveres its framers, I do not believe that the founders of our country intended to invest the vice president with the unilateral authority to decide which electoral votes should be counted during the joint session of Congress, and no vice president in American history has ever asserted such authority. Instead, vice presidents presiding over joint sessions have uniformly followed the Electoral Count Act, conducting the proceedings in an orderly manner, even where the count resulted in the defeat of their party or their own candidacy. Working with the parliamentarian, Pence here actually takes some steps to change the script a little bit to make sure that the process adheres to the procedure of the Electoral Count Act and, and makes the ministerial function of the vice president very explicit. And that's really the story. Uh, of course, the chapter goes on a little bit to talk about the danger that Pence faced and the the utter indifference that Trump had to Pence's risk during the riot itself. It describes again, of course, Pence's refusal to get in the car and leave the scene. Uh, and it says that the vice president's staff came to believe that the theory pushed and sold to the public that the vice president had a role to play in the joint session was a cause of the attack on the Capitol. The reason that the Capitol was assaulted was that the people who were breaching the Capitol believed that the election outcome had not yet been determined, and instead that there was some action that, that was supposed to take place in Washington, D.C. to determine it, Jacob said. I do think the violence was the result of that position being continuously pushed and sold to people who ended up believing that with all their hearts. So there's an amazing coda to this, which is as they are being evacuated at 2.14 p.m., Jacob writes an email to Eastman when the Capitol is breached. Just before he's there evacuated, Jacob hurriedly sends out his email, adds the following, thanks to your bullshit, we are now under siege. And Eastman, in a kind of amazing piece of evidence of what a delusional state he was in, he re replies, the siege is because you and your boss did not do what was necessary to allow this to be aired in a public way so the American people can see for themselves what happened. This is kind of the vice president was wearing a too revealing skirt, and so he deserved what he got kind of response. In further evidence that he was just kind of on a different planet at this point, Eastman actually kept agitating for further delay even after this. As late as 11.44 on January 6th, he's emailing Jacob again, claiming that the Electoral Count Act had been violated already by allowing too much debate, so why not violate it some more? It really has the air of a if, you know, I'm no clinician, but a kind of manic frenzy. Pence himself later described this uh, email as rubber room stuff. Even the following day, January 7th, he calls Hirschman to discuss litigation on behalf of the Trump campaign in Georgia. And this uh, gave rise to the famous Hirschman, perhaps his most famous line, are you out of your effing mind? Hirschman asked, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth from now on, orderly transition. Hirschman said, after some berating, Eastman repeated after Hirschman, orderly transition. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life, Hirschman said, get a great effing criminal defense lawyer you're going to need it. And days after that, Eastman, apparently having had a moment to think about it, sends an email to Giuliani making a request that maybe again acknowledged just the degree to which he was aware that his actions had not been lawful. Quote, I've decided that I should be on the pardon list if that's still in the works. 
So that is the end of chapter five. And here are a few thoughts on it. The first is that, as I've noted along the way, the Justice Department is going to be able to fill in a lot of the gaps here. And at least as regards Cipollone and uh, Philbin really already, almost certainly already has. Uh, so this story, I think, will get worse for Trump. And specifically on how aware he was, was he specifically advised by counsel that his activity was unlawful? I think the Justice Department will have very clear testimony from counsel on that. Uh, secondly, notice the interactions of the fake elector scheme discussed in chapter three and this scheme. So this scheme, to the extent that it works, which it doesn't, but the whole thing is predicated on the idea that there are competing slates of electors, which requires the fake elector scheme. Now, it still doesn't work, but that is the premise, right? That you're going to get the fake electors and then you're going to use the fake electors to get Mike Pence to, to not count the real electors. And so you can see in a very deep way how this chapter, the story in this chapter, depends on the story that was told in chapter three. If you believe, and I think the evidence is pretty strong, that Trump was directing the fake electors scheme, and you believe that he was directing, and here the evidence is overpowering, the Eastman scheme, then it really does start to look a little bit like one conspiracy. And that's, I think, an important conceptual idea as you think about criminal process in this area. All right, we are going to stop there. Chapter six is coming up. It is about the insurrection itself. It is entitled, Be There, Will Be Wild. We'll be back.